Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. In true fashion, I was meant to be doing this with Alina, but she stood me up. Well, I'm not here alone. I have Stephen King with me, who is a senior economic advisor to uh, my bank. He's also a columnist for the Evening Standard and is also a special advisor to the House of Commons Treasury Committee and has written books, Losing Control, When the Money Runs Out, which should be my biography title, and A Brave New World. Stephen, welcome to History Hack. How are you? I'm very good, and, and it's great to be here. Um, well, I think I'm, it's great to be here. I'm sort of virtually here, aren't I, rather than actually here. But uh, yeah, it's good to be here. I just realised I didn't mention why you're here. Uh, <laughs> you're here to talk about your new book. We need to talk about inflation. Um, I can't believe I forgot to mention the book that was in my hand when I said, <laughs> which is, we were talking just before we came on air, and I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really an economist. So... For those people in the same boat as me, let's start at the beginning. What is inflation? Well, that's a slightly trickier question than you might imagine. Uh, so when people think about a cost of living crisis, that's not really inflation uh, completely. Uh, a cost of living crisis is typically when prices are going up relative to people's wages. Um, inflation is a situation where pretty much everything's going up at the same time, not necessarily at the same pace. So it's increases in prices, it's increases in wages, it's increases in profits and rents, everything's going up um, at the same time uh, relative to the size of the economy. Um, so actually, perhaps a better way of defining it is not so much the idea that all these prices are going up, it is rather that the value of cash is steadily falling over time, that inflation is a destructive process that effectively erodes the value of the pound in your pocket. It um, something that Harold Wilson probably didn't recognise fully back in the late 1960s. Well, I immediately thought was uh, Weimar Germany with the wheelbarrows of money. Yeah, so, so um, I mean, that's a very good example of hyperinflation in the sense that prices are rising at an incredible rate and people are desperate to get rid of money uh, as soon as it enters into their pocket because they know that um, it's going to be worth nothing. I mean, there's a story, probably apocryphal, but... Um, of a German man who bought two bottles of beer at the same time because he knew that if he waited to buy the second one after he'd finished the first, he'd have to pay a lot more for it. So, uh, you know, during hyperinflations, uh, when you've got sort of, you know, a million percent plus inflation rates, the first thing you do when you get uh, a note or a coin is, is get rid of it as fast as possible because you know it's going to drop in value at the most extraordinary pace. Um, of course, most countries don't have hyperinflations. Um, and to be fair, most countries over the last 20 or 30 years have had very little in the way of inflation either. Um, but what we've witnessed over the last two or three years is something which is a sort of blast from the past because, you know, a few years back, people were saying inflation was dead and buried. It was never coming back. and We knew how to deal with it and so on. Um, and suddenly we're faced with inflation rates that we haven't really witnessed since the early 1980s or maybe the 1970s in some cases. So these are strange times, I think, when it comes to inflation. We tend to think of it as sort of a modern problem. I was born in 1980, and I, I remember sort of the inflation of the 80s, the 90s, then the crash in 2010. Yeah, inflation is a, a theme that's kind of run and run over um, many hundreds of years. Um, there is something a bit unusual there about the last 100 years or so, because for most of history, um, you've had periods of when prices have risen rapidly and periods when prices have fallen rapidly, they tended to offset each other. So you haven't necessarily had a persistent loss in the value of money. Um, the last 100 years or so is a little bit different because uh, that period you've had pretty much continuous inflation, sometimes high, sometimes low, but very little in the way of deflation in the world of falling prices. Um, I mean, Japan's flirted with it over the last 20 or 30 years. 
and the eurozone had a slight flirtation with it after the global financial crisis. But for the most part, um, the value of money has fallen. So if you look at a, a pound um, in 1900 and then think, what was that pound worth 100 years later? Well, 100 years later, it was only worth two pence. So this is probably the most destructive time in terms of destroying the value of money. Going back through history, um, and my book focuses on a few examples of where inflation has been pretty high. Uh, the Roman period between birth of Christ, I suppose, and about 300 AD, uh, there was a lot of inflation. Uh, the price level, I mean, this is all guesswork, of course, because we don't have much information, but it, it looks as though the price level back then over those 300 years rose by about 20,000%. And the reason for yeah. that um, was that um, you know, the empire was being attacked on all sides um, on and off, and you needed lots of soldiers to protect the empire, um, and you had to pay those soldiers, but the real resources weren't there to pay them. So the easy thing to do was to debase the, the coin. So effectively, um, these are supposed to be, you know, denarii were supposed to be silver coins, but the silver content of these coins fell from about 90% at the beginning to only 5% at the end. So this is like a sort of early version of a printing press, you know, effectively uh, the, the government of the day ripping off people by effectively printing money, creating inflation and ensuring that the value of that money fell um, over time. And then a second big example historically, which certainly involves something similar, although not quite the same, is... Um, uh, the so-called price revolution of the 16th century feeding through into the early 17th century as well. Um, and that's really associated with the Spanish having sailed across um, to the Americas, uh, having fortuitously discovered uh, a mountain in Bolivia that happened to be mostly made of silver. <laughs> and uh, having sort of dug out large amounts of silver and then shipped across the Atlantic back to Spain. Um, of course, it didn't all get back to Spain because Sir Francis Drake was nicking somewhere on the way, but uh, uh, a lot of it got back to Spain, and the Spanish effectively used that silver to buy fripperies, you know, imports from elsewhere in Europe. Um, so effectively, the, the silver supply uh, was rising rapidly in Europe, and in effect, the value of silver fell. In other words, that inflation picked up. So prices rose steadily through the course of that long century. Um, another example is uh, the French Revolution. Um, and this is an extraordinary period, actually, because you had a, an incredibly experimental monetary policy, because at the time of the revolution, a lot of people who uh, were slightly frightened of the revolution wanted to get their money uh, offshore as quickly as possible. So this is mostly the form, of course, of gold and silver. So there was a tremendous monetary shortage, and the revolutionaries responded to that uh, by creating a, a new money, a paper money, in the form of assignats, which were a little bit similar to, um, I suppose, a, a collateralized debt obligation uh, during the global financial crisis, because effectively their value was supposed to be linked uh, to the land that had been seized from the Catholic Church during um, the revolution itself. Um, and the problem with this was that the public didn't really trust this stuff. And in particular, as more and more people printed more and more of this stuff, there's also a lot more counterfeiting coming through. So eventually, uh, there's a loss of trust amongst the public as to what this newfangled money was. Um, and, uh, you know, it was not so much that there was too much of it printed, although there was a little bit printed, is that people wanted to get rid of it as fast as possible. So um in a sort of technical sense, as economists would call it, they say the velocity of circulation of money picked up usually. So it was, it's changing hands incredibly rapidly, uh, which meant that prices were effectively being bid up. Um, so in general, you, you tend to find that inflation um, picks up quite a lot during wartime. And this goes back to the sort of Roman period, that uh, if you're short of resources and you don't really want to raise taxes too far. You don't want to impose tremendous austerity on people. What you do instead is you, you basically print money. And so you find that through British history, for example, the, the, the primary periods where inflation has been unusually high uh, are associated 
typically with big increases in government debt and also wartime. So uh, during the Napoleonic period, you get a lot of inflation coming through. There was a lot of inflation um, during the First World War and a lot of inflation during the Second World War. Although, of course, during the Second World War, there's an attempt to try to repress that inflation through through rationing. Uh, but broadly speaking, um, you know, there's lots of examples of where inflation has has come along. Um, and um, in some cases, it's proved to be highly um, destructive. Yeah, going back to my A-levels, which were too long ago, um, I did Russian history and there was this Russian government's attempt in 1917 to uh, try and stop inflation by mass printing money. And again, you, you, that, that led to hyperinflation as well. And I think from French Revolution as well, the poor, when they started handing out paper money, people were didn't want to start using it because they preferred money which had a value when they looked at it rather than like a promissory note saying this is worth this many francs. That's right. I mean, through through much of human history, it, it is precisely the idea that money is precious and represented with precious metal and maybe a monarch's head stamped onto the coin that sort of tells people that this is stuff that uh, they can keep and it's going to be absolutely fine. Um, paper money um, in the form that we have it today and probably even more so electronic money, which is what most of us use most of the time these days, uh, is very much a story that emerges really with the sort of the collapse of the gold standard in the 1930s. I mean, up until then, you could go along with your, I don't know, your 20 pound note and pop down to the Bank of England and swap it for a lump of gold. It would be probably quite a small lump of gold, but you could do it. Um, you know, the promise was there to be able to swap your, your paper money into, into gold. Um, and when Britain came off the gold standard in the early 1930s, uh, that link was broken and it's never really returned. I mean, there was a slight return in terms of US dollars vis-a-vis gold under the Bretton Woods system um, from the late 1940s through to the early 1970s. But for the most part, we've got used to the idea over the last 100 years that that money doesn't have to be of any value apart from the fact that it has value because we all trust it and know that we're all prepared to accept uh, that money from somebody else. So as long as it's yeah. acceptable, it has value, even though its intrinsic value is effectively zero. I not realised that with the coming off the gold standard, that money wasn't linked to gold anymore. So, yeah, it's very, uh, very promissory that this £20 note is worth £20 because it's quite arbitrary. Well, it's arbitrary apart from the fact that ever since the go- we came off the gold standard, there's been an attempt to come up with some other system to to give people the confidence that money is not going to lose value. Um, so uh, under Bretton Woods, under that system, as I say, which emerged in the late 1940s, um, in, in effect, all other currencies were supposedly tethered to the dollar, the US dollar, and the US dollar <laughs> at the same time was supposedly tethered to gold. Um, and then Nixon broke that link in the early 70s. Uh, partly because inflation was building in the U.S. In other words, there was pressure for the dollar to fall in value against gold, uh, and partly because, of course, the U.S. was funding a rather expensive war in Vietnam, uh, which also added to uh, inflationary pressures that were not really consistent with the dollar remaining on the gold standard. Um, and then you had, at the beginning of the 1970s, the so-called Smithsonian Agreement, um, which effectively separated the U.S. dollar from gold, and it's never return. So yeah, since the early 70s, you, you've had a series of other experiments to try to persuade people that money's not going to lose value. And that sort of ranges from exchange rate targets through to money supply targets, sort of height of monetarism in the 1980s. Um, and most central banks nowadays have settled on so-called inflation targets. And an inflation target is, is really no more than a sort of vague guarantee that money uh, will lose its value only at a preordained and very, very slow rate year by year. So effectively, you've got an inflation target of 2%. That's basically telling you that um, money will lose its value by about 2% each and every single year. We mentioned the gold standard. I believe that was Churchill, if I remember correctly. Well, Ch- Ch- Churchill went took us back onto the gold standard. The gold standard has been around in a sort of convention of monetary policy and monetary arrangements, particularly in the second half of the 19th century. And then... During World War One, um, countries came off the gold standard because they basically wanted some inflation. They wanted to print money to fund their military expenditures. And then in the 1920s, there was a question as to whether you'd go back on the gold standard at the pre-World War One exchange rate or whether you would 
go back but at a lower exchange rate and and, and very simply the the French went back on a lower exchange rate so they were more competitive than they were previously um, and the British thinking they should be entirely honourable to their foreign creditors and therefore pay them back in full uh, went back on the gold standard at the pre-First World War exchange rate basically meant that prices and wages in the UK were too high relative to prices and wages everywhere else, uh, which, of course, prompted uh, John Maynard Keynes to describe the gold standard as a sort of barbarous relic. Um, and um, he he was, you know, absolutely sort of vociferous in cr- criticising Churchill's decision. I think, to be fair, I think Churchill himself recognised it was a pretty <laughs> rubbish decision. Um, but the implication was that if your prices and wages are too high compared with everybody else and you're actually committed to the gold standard, the only way you can uh, become competitive is to drive your prices and wages down domestically. Um, I mean, effectively, the relationship between the exchange rate and domestic prices and wages is uh, a little bit similar to the relationship between the piano and the piano stool. Uh, if you have an exchange rate devaluation, it's like pushing the piano stool towards the piano. <laughs> if you have an attempt to push down domestic prices and wages much more like pushing the piano towards the piano stall is much harder. Um, and it's harder, of course, because people don't like taking absolute, you know, pay cuts. Um, no. and that's what was demanded of the UK in the mid 1920s. And of course, the general strike was one consequence, um, of these, um, I suppose early examples of policies of austerity. So, uh, what, what role do governments have in sort of controlling or dealing with inflation? So we're so used nowadays to the idea of independent central banks whose job it is to set monetary policy and basically interest rates to keep inflation at around about 2% that we've, I think, lost track of the fact that governments play a very, very important role. Um, and in the book, I, I've used a sort of Hollywood uh, metaphor to describe this. So I, I describe this as a sort of uh, Burton-Taylor problem referencing Richard Burton and yeah. Taylor. The point about that, of course, is that this is Taylor and Richard Burton. They were married. They were divorced. They were married. They were divorced. And uh, from what I understand, um, just before Burton died, he wrote a final love letter to Elizabeth Taylor. And it may be the case that she took that love letter to her own grave when she um, died. Um, and so the idea of the Burton-Taylor relationship is that it was monetary and fiscal policy. Um, they're together. They're separate. They're together. They're separate. You, you, you never quite get to the point where the the central bank is entirely independent and doesn't have to worry about what the government is up to. The critical thing here um, is that governments have to fund whatever it is they're doing. Um, And we normally think of this in terms of taxes uh, being raised to fund increases in public spending, you know, pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, But inflation actually does it for you as well, but in a very, very underhand way. So let's imagine you're a person with with cash savings, and let's imagine the government has a lot of debt. Um, if the government then starts printing a lot of money, um, then the value of your cash savings goes down because there's too much money around. And effectively, what you've got in the bank is losing value over time because prices are rising. Uh, and that's not good news for you. But on the, on the other hand, for the government, this actually is quite good news because the level of government debt in itself is not terribly interesting. What matters is the level of government debt relative to the size of the so-called nominal economy, the value of the economy. So if you're printing lots of money, the value of the economy is going up, irrespective of the fact that no one's producing anything more. So effectively, um, the debt is falling relative to this expanded level of so-called nominal income. Um, and so effectively, inflation can act as a kind of stealthy tax on cash savings. Uh, to help stabilize the government's financial position. And time after time after time throughout history, um, you know, whether it's Roman current debasement or whether it's a current debasement that Henry VIII did, uh, when he was on the throne in Britain, uh, whether it's the current debasement that happened, uh, during the American Civil War, um, you know, all these examples are examples of where governments are able to print money, um, and effectively to impose a stealthy tax on other people. Um, and this has kind of returned in a strange kind of way because there's been this big discussion recently about so-called uh, quantitative easing. Um, and um, 
you know, some economists think this is a kind of backdoor way of, of, of creating inflation and effectively uh, relinking monetary and fiscal policy, because effectively what the central bank is doing when it's doing quantitative easing is it's buying up government debt. Um, and um, there's a sort of possibility, at least, that by doing this, it's lowering interest rates from where they would otherwise have been, um, which in turn means that uh, there's more stimulus to the economy, which in one sense is great. But if that stimulus leads to higher inflation rather than higher growth, uh, then in effect, you've got high inflation. You've got, by definition, low interest rates, because that's what quantitative easing does. So if interest rates are low, inflation is high, then actually uh, your return on your savings is is lower than you'd like it to be. In other words, your interest rate is lower than the inflation rate, and basically you're therefore losing money over a period of time. Um, so this kind of currency debasement story, in one sense, has vaguely returned um, in recent times. So, so it's good for the government, but not necessarily good for the taxpayer. Um, well, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, in, inflation, I mean, I think it's important to stress, and I'm sure we'll get to this anyway, but it's important to stress that inflation is a is a viciously unfair process. Um, it is entirely undemocratic, um, and it creates uh, winners and losers. So, I mean, there is a sort of theoretical economic situation where if all prices, all wages and everything rise at the same time, at the same pace, then you shouldn't have to care about inflation. But that's a, an entirely fictitious world. You know, normally what happens is some prices go up and others don't. Some people's wages go up and other people's don't. And you create a, a world increasingly of both winners and losers. And that becomes a sort of toxic political problem over a period of time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, an example of it's come into my mind, but I, I don't really want to say it where it can be recorded. <laughs> I'll tell you at the end. Okay. <laughs> but, um, so uh, what is the case for resisting inflationary temptations? Well, the case against it is that resisting inflationary temptations is normally quite painful because it requires, you know, higher interest rates, maybe higher taxes, austerity, um, you know, stuff that's pretty unpleasant. and. Uh, you know, anyone who remembers the early years of Thatcherism will know that if inflation is really out of control, um, then getting rid of it itself is potentially a very, very painful process and very, very unfair. However, if you don't get rid of it, um, you tend to discover um, that the impact on the economy over time uh, gets more and more damaging. Um, so, you know, one problem with inflation is that you can't really tell what the true value of anything is because you're never quite sure whether a price has gone up because it reflects a shortage of that particular good or whether the price has gone up because it's a reflection of a broader inflationary problem. Um, and the the difficulty when you have that kind of confusion is that uh, the so-called invisible hand, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand, can't really work very well. Um, and what you typically find then is that periods of high inflation tend to be increasingly associated with periods of very disappointing economic growth. In other words, that living standards don't rise as quickly. And alongside that, you also have this, as I say, undemocratic problem whereby you're creating winners and losers. And you know, broadly speaking, during these periods of inflation, um, if you're a, a powerful company with pricing power, then you don't really worry too much about it. You can probably pass on higher costs in the form of higher prices. Uh, similarly, if you happen to be a member of a a powerful union, and to be fair, there are fewer of them now than there were back in the 1970s, uh, you might well find that you can negotiate a decent pay settlement uh, for your members and get some compensation for uh, the increase in inflation. Uh, but of course, there's lots of people who are not in either of those categories. There are small companies with no pricing power. There are individual workers who are not members of unions. Um, there are pensioners with savings who will discover that um, their savings are in danger of being wiped out through inflation. That was certainly a big theme um, during the course of the 1970s. Uh, and moreover, um, even as cash savers are losing out during a period of inflation, um, those who borrowed a lot typically can do quite well. So, I mean, there's a, a very good example here of you know, people who bought houses and, and properties in the 1970s. Um, they did very well out of it because typically the inflation meant that the value of the house went up over time. Uh, but also because the inflation was lifting these people's wages over time, of course, it meant that their wages were rising relative to the mortgage that they'd taken out in the first place. So it was a huge windfall gain for this group in society. 
over that period of time. So <clears throat> you had pensioners doing badly and maybe some of these first-time buyers uh, being bailed out very nicely. So the, the issue with inflation ultimately is that um, once you allow it to become established, it, it, it really, I think, becomes a sort of toxic process uh, that damages society, builds up high levels of mistrust, um, and um, uh, can lead to, uh, I, I suppose, a sort of increasing mistrust of, of the political apparatus that exists. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in, on evidence, in evidence uh, during, for example, the 1970s. It had quite a, quite to do with the fall of uh, the Labour government, uh, Callaghan's government, didn't it? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, that was an interesting, particularly interesting period because, to be fair, I mean, Wilson and Callahan had, had tried to do something about inflation, but I think they kind of reached the wrong diagnosis to a certain degree, but I think they were partly hamstrung by the fact that the party itself was so split as to what to do. Um, but in the mid-70s, you know, there was a, a series of experiments with incomes policies and prices policies that frankly didn't work very well because there was, and this makes me sound like a monetarist, but there was effectively too much money chasing too few goods and <laughs> it doesn't really matter what you did in terms of price and, and wage controls, you still weren't really going to control inflation. Um, Healy, Dennis Healy, as Chancellor of Exchequer, um, in one sense, I think, regarded the IMF's arrival to bail out the UK in 1976 as a, I think he described it once as a, as a pyrrhic defeat. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I think his, his point was that, um, the IMF was very, very useful in coming in. It might have been a humiliation at the time, but it effectively allowed Healy to impose the monetary and financial discipline that he'd always wanted to impose but has been unable to persuade his cabinet to, to, to put up with it. Um, so the IMF stepping in and providing a bailout and making that bailout conditional uh, actually changed things quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the the problem, I suppose, by the time you get to sort of late 1978, is that these incomes and prices policy is not working terribly well. Inflation is going back up again. Um the government has a guideline for public sector pay, which is effectively saying that pay shouldn't be going up any more than 5% a year. And then Ford workers managed to negotiate a pay increase of 17%. Wow. <laughs> At that point, everything kicks off because, you know, this issue with inflation is, is one of unfairness. And, you know, if you look at, you see your next door neighbor who happens to work for Ford is getting a 17% pay increase and you're working in the public sector and getting a 5% pay increase, you might be thinking to yourself, this doesn't sound ideal. Um, and of course, this led to the so-called winter of discontent um, when you know, lots and lots of particularly public sector workers uh, withdrew their labour in the bid to try to negotiate um, you know, significant compensation for higher inflation. Um, and this, of course, was... was um, uh, a disaster for Callaghan because he had been ahead of, in the opinion polls in late 1978. But by May 79, when the election came along, you know, <laughs> it was a bit of a disaster. Yeah. It was Thatcher won a thumping victory. Uh, the same sort of thing happened in a way towards uh, 2010 with a, a crash of the IMF. Um, like late, um, Labour were, I mean, they were losing ground anyway, but the financial policies were just not considered to be... Um, were not really backed by the public and it caused quite a bit of a problem for them. So this is an example actually oddly enough of, of where inflation itself wasn't much of a problem, but there was a huge amount of financial instability. Um, and, uh, you know, whether Gordon Brown should be blamed in any significant way for what happened as is, is debatable, I think, but yeah. it, it is the case that you know, the public hope to see some level of economic stability. And if there isn't economic stability, then it's the government of the day that typically is blamed. Actually, just as an aside, this, this is an interesting question for 
central banks today because they're the ones who are on the hook for trying to control inflation. Uh, and if they fail, um, of course, it's the politicians who'll be on the hook if it, if it goes wrong. So I, I sort of vaguely wonder whether the days of independent central banking, where we worship our central bankers being so wise and so clever, whether those days are numbered, because I, you know, technocratic people whose job it is to, or they discover their job is to throw the economy into recession to try to get inflation under control. <laughs> That's not a great <laughs> position to be in, because you can't really demonstrate any kind of political legitimacy for those kinds of very, very tough choices. 13 years on, I do think Gordon Brown took a lot of unnecessary blame for it. But um, as you said, when you're the figurehead, <laughs> you're the one that gets, you're the one that gets blamed. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's true throughout, isn't it? That, um, you know, you could arguably say, I mean, one of the quirks of, of recent history is that thanks to the IMF's intervention, you could even try to argue that monetarism wasn't actually introduced to the UK by Thatcher. It was already there. It was introduced by, by Callaghan and Healy in the late 1970s. You know, it's potentially a rather controversial point, but they were certainly embracing um, tentative monetary targets at that stage. Um, so it started before Thatcher uh, got through the doors of number 10. But um, but nevertheless, their problem, I suppose, was that they lacked political legitimacy for the policies that they were pursuing. And Thatcher could say, well, actually, I do have the legitimacy because I just won a thumping election. So, so I think there are some big issues there about what do you do when you have to make tough economic choices? Can you effectively... Uh, outsource those choices to central banks who are technocrats and lack that kind of uh, legitimacy that may ultimately be required. So this one, this one confused me. Um, what are the four inflationary tests? Ah, so uh, it confuses me as well. Now, to be fair, I I, I um, felt that you know one of the big problems with inflation is is trying to work out whether the inflation you've got is persistent or otherwise. So. You know, there are examples in the past of inflation that picked up for a year or two and disappeared as fast as it had arrived. Uh, most obviously, you know, during, say, the Korean War um, in the early 50s, where inflation was there for a bit and then disappeared as soon as the war came to an end. And obviously, because you've got the war in Ukraine, there's a sort of temptation to think that maybe this might be something similar. So my four tests were really to say, how confident can we be that this is a, a temporary or transitory shock of the kind that central banks themselves have described? And, and to what extent might it be something that's more persistent? So my tests are designed to not give a, an absolutely compelling answer, but they're designed to sort of think about the question in a slightly different way from the sort of standard economic model that people use. So uh, my first test is, is there a bias amongst policymakers to create inflation? Um, you might think this is a very peculiar situation to be in, but you've got to bear in mind that over the last 20 or 30 years, um, people have been mostly worried about a sort of Japanification of uh, the developed Western economies. In other words, slow growth, uh, deflation, world of falling prices, falling asset prices, uh, everything that feels um, to, to the Western mind, I suppose, fairly miserable economically. Uh, and so effectively, policymakers have put all their chips on deflationary readiness. We must, must, must battle against deflation. And I think it got to the point where they just couldn't even imagine that inflation itself could return. So when it did return, um, there was almost like a, a lack of intellectual capacity to examine what was going on and why it was going on. Um, and I would suggest that the fact that central banks stuck to quantitative easing, for example, for such a long period of time, and it's supposed to be a purely short-lived experimental policy just after the global financial crisis, tells you quite a lot about the fact that they sense that deflation was the only game in town. So the bias against fighting deflation, if you like, the, the, the bias to deal with deflation, uh, I think meant that they took their eye off the ball when it came to inflation. Um, the second test is is a uh, really old-fashioned one. It goes back to Roman times, and it, <laughs> it sort of continues throughout history, which is, is there evidence of excessive monetary expansion, uh, whether that's you know, coin clipping or currency debasement or actual printing of money or doing weird stuff with QE? Is there evidence perhaps that there's been a monetary expansion that might eventually blow up in the form of rapidly increasing prices? And what is striking, not just about the UK, but the US, the Eurozone, in 2020, a lot of extra money was printed. Um, and it was almost like a global phenomenon. Uh, at the time, of course, it was done because people were terrified about another Great Depression. But as it turned out, 
Um, there was no Great Depression. There were no multiple bank failures. There was no mass bankruptcies. Um, there was no mass unemployment. There was no collapse in asset prices. All these things didn't happen this time around. Um, and, and yet the money was still sloshing around. So when lockdowns came to an end, what it basically meant was that there was an awful lot of money chasing relatively few goods. And um, that, I think, did give rise to some of the inflation that we've seen. And I think that even now there's a kind of monetary overhang in the sense that people still have more money you might expect stashed away in the form of higher value financial assets or in some cases uh, slightly more sort of robust bank balances they might have expected. And um, so that spending might still be there. This is my second test. The third test is a, a sort of test of, of complacency. Um, you know, when you see inflation rising, is your instinct to say, it's all just external shocks. It's stuff that we can do nothing about. And actually, we're confident that things won't be bad in a couple of years' time. So therefore, we're just going to broadly ignore it. And I think there's a lot of evidence of complacency over the last two or three years. And even now, there's a tendency to say that it's all just external shocks. And there's a, actually a quote in the book, uh, which I've used on quite a few occasions. I've read it out and said, well, who do you think said this? And it basically says something along the lines of, um, you know, the increase in prices that's coming through is a consequence of cost and price increases from abroad over which we have no control. And you, know, you ask people who said that, and typical answers are Andrew Bailey, the Government Bank of England, or Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, or Christine Lagarde, uh, the president of the ECB. Uh, but the actual words came from Anthony Barber, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, in the early 1970s. He said this actually in February 1974, just before he and the Tories were booted out of office. Um, but it's a very good example of where there's a tendency to say, don't worry about it too much. It's just an external shock, nothing to do with us. And it has no lasting inflationary consequences. We've discovered in the 1970s that actually these kinds of shocks can have lasting inflationary consequences. And my final, uh, final test is really, has there been a, a persistent, um, negative, um, supply side shock? In other words, have economies lost the capacity to grow at the pace they were growing previously? Uh, and does that mean that if we try to keep growing at the previous pace, we just end up bidding prices up and end up with more inflation than we had previously? Uh, and this is partly a story about the reversal of the globalization. You might say that's been sped up temporarily because of the pandemic. It probably has been. But uh, the sort of hyper-globalization of the 1990s and the period before the global financial crisis, I think that's over. And it's over partly because there are more controls on the movement of capital across borders than there once was. But most importantly, it's over because, of course, relations between the US and China have significantly deteriorated. So that kind of, you know, Francis Fukuyama end of history claim, uh, now looks <laughs> increasingly odd. Um, and, uh, you know, the belief in the sort of one big global happy family of like-minded countries with similar political systems that clearly has gone. Um, and so you haven't got the, the same kind of economic globalization that we had once, um, enjoyed, if that's the right word to use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mind immediately turned to the, uh, Japanese, uh, pan Asian pro, um, pan Asian co-prosperity sphere. Uh, their idea, their idea of, uh, bringing everyone into a global economy in Southeast Asia, as long as they were the ones that made all the money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are actually, the great thing about uh, the World Trade Organization was the idea you have common rules for everybody, but we've basically splintered off into regional trading blocks over the last um, 15 years or so. And the idea of, uh, as I say, one big global happy family uh, doesn't really work anymore. Of course, one unusually splintered regional trading bloc is called the United Kingdom. <laughs> the <laughs> but, uh, uh, but there are, you know, peculiarities now that are not what people would have expected, I would say, 15, 20 years ago. We've sort of touched on it already, but um, we are living in quite an economically unstable time at the moment. Why has inflation come back in a vengeance now? So um, the obvious explanations are the pandemic. Um, and also the war in Ukraine and the impact that's had on energy prices and food prices. Uh, I want to say they're obvious. They're also easy explanations. Um, my four tests basically suggest it's not just those factors. It's, it's other stuff going on as well. 
where we perhaps tolerated too much inflation compared with the uh, recent past. Um, and importantly, I think that central banks have begun to believe in their own propaganda. They got to the point of saying, well, so long as we promise to hit 2% in two years' time, and so long as the public believe us and the public believe we've got the tools to do it, that the public will believe we get there and everything's going to be absolutely fine and dandy. Um, and well, that's fine, apart from the fact that we know, actually, oddly enough, in revolutionary France, that if you do strange stuff with monetary policy, um, then the public can lose their trust in you. Um, and one of the dangers of all this is that imagine that the public have the choice between two rules of thumb. And rules of thumb in economics are probably more important than most economists would accept. Yeah, the first rule of thumb is the central bank tells us uh, that inflation will be at 2%. Their record so far has been pretty good. Therefore, my rule of thumb is they'll continue to achieve 2%. That's quite a nice rule uh, from the central banker's point of view. If the public's rule of thumb says or changes to the central bank promised us 2%, but we've actually got 10%, they're talking nonsense. I'm no longer going to believe what the central bank says. I will focus my beliefs on where inflation is today. That's a completely different rule of thumb. It might be a reasonable rule of thumb, but it has very profound implications for where um, inflation settles down. And it also has profound implications for how hard you have to work, how much monetary heavy lifting you have to do uh, to get inflation back under control. Um, so this, this is, I think, a key point. Yeah, monetarists have a very sort of simple view of the world whereby yeah, money supply determines prices. I don't think it's that simple. I, I think there's a mixture of, yes, money supply being important, but equally um, preserving the public's trust in the um, financial and fiscal institution. And if that trust is threatened, partly because you have a sustained period of higher than expected inflation, uh, then you can end up with problems irrespective of what's happening with, say, money supply. Bit of an open, open question, really. Um, but how has inflation been tackled in the past and what lessons can we learn from it for tackling with our current inflation problems? So, first of all, if you don't take inflation seriously, it's likely to hang around. And it hangs around because it is unfair. And so, you know, imagine that you have a situation where your next door neighbour has negotiated the pay increase. And then the government comes along and says, right, that's it, we're going to stop inflation now. So they've got their pay increase, but you haven't got your pay increase. You might be feeling fairly aggrieved by that. So in other words, once inflation is established, there's a process whereby people expect to get a pay increase in line with their neighbours, then stopping that process is tricky because it seems to be unfair. Um, so the first thing to say is that once it's established, it's difficult to get rid of. Um, the second thing I would say is that the easy way politically to tackle it is to do stuff that seems to be fair. And there's always an attraction to things like, you know, price controls and, and um, wage controls, because you think, well, you know, in an inflationary environment, um, everyone can sort of make a bit of a sacrifice to deal with the underlying problem. So and we had some of this in terms of you know, push for price controls over the last two or three years, particularly in the U.S., and of course, during the 1970s, the both price and wage controls. The problem with it is that this sort of thing doesn't work very well, uh, because if again the, the underlying problem is too much money chasing too few goods, then what you tend to find is that some costs are under control, uh, but at the same time that um, uh, prices still carry on rising quite quickly. So if you look at what the Harold Wilson government did in the uh, 1970s, um, there was an attempt to be fair, and certainly wages were repressed to a significant degree. But all that happened was that prices kept rising anyway. Um, so it was seen to be unfair, and eventually, you know, wages tipped over again. So, you know, that was a sort of um, fairly big problem. Um, and the lesson really is if you really want to tackle inflation, you're serious about it, um, you probably have to... Um, you know, change monetary conditions in some way. You have to raise interest rates. You have to make things more painful than you ideally want them to be. Uh, but you have to show that you're serious about bringing inflation under control. And the person who, who talked about this, and I think described it rather nicely, was Paul Volcker, who was the chairman of the Fed from the late 1970s through to the mid-1980s. And he's seen by many people as being the sort of all-conquering hero of inflation, first of all in the U.S. and by implication in countries elsewhere in the world. Um, 
Uh, but he he, is, he himself admitted that one reason why he was successful was that he arrived at the right time. And what he was trying to say was that the politics of inflation in the early 1970s were not amenable to dealing with it. Um, and the reason for that was that in the early 70s, inflation was seen to be a consequence of external shocks and nothing else. Um, and that um, you know, monetary and fiscal policy should be aimed at trying to deal with unemployment. And so the assumption was that inflation would simply go away, and that wasn't, wasn't right, it just persisted. So it wasn't really until the late 1970s that people began to think maybe, maybe, conquering inflation is a necessary condition of them being able to tackle these other economic objectives in terms of, say, unemployment or, or economic growth. But it, it took a lot of pain to reach that political conclusion. And so even if I'm right in suggesting that, you know, um, raising interest rates and making life painful in the short run is ultimately the right thing to do. Persuading people generally that this is the right thing to do it yeah. is itself tricky. Um, and um, it wouldn't surprise me over the next few years that we have a situation where inflation is tolerated more than perhaps it should be because the near-term pain of tackling it is actually pretty high. And you'd rather avoid that. So instead, you'd rather pretend that inflation is just a series of you know, unlucky, unfortunate events. It'll simply go away. Uh, but the lesson from the 1970s is that if you don't try and tackle it, it probably won't go away. So interestingly, in the mid-1970s, you had, you know, obviously you had the big oil shock in 73 that everyone knows about. Um, but the Germans and the British responded completely different to the oil shock. The Germans saw it as an inflation problem and kept policies quite tight and defeated inflation relatively quickly. Uh, the British saw it as an unemployment problem, so it kept policies quite loose and simply allowed inflation to, to pick up. So um, in the mid-1970s, German inflation was well-behaved. British inflation <laughs> was absolutely not well-behaved. It was a disaster. It's probably a really slow analogy, but it's like pulling a plaster off. It's going to hurt, but if you do it, everything's going to be all right. If you leave it, it's going to fester. Yes, yeah, so I, well, that's a particularly unpleasant analogy. <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, I, it, or it's a bit like sort of, you know, trying to deal with the symptoms of a, of an illness without actually tackling the illness itself. You, you, you can do stuff that, uh, will cover things up for a bit, but, you know, the illness will progress regardless. So you, you've got to tackle the illness itself. So, you know, it's like taking painkillers to solve a, a problem that is deeper than just a problem of temporary pain. Um, but as I say, the, you need to have a sort of political acceptance of this. This is not a, you know, a left versus right debate. It's a debate about um, understanding the, the longer term consequences of persistent inflation, recognizing that itself it's a problem, um, and weighing that up against the the near term losses associated with tackling inflation. In other words, people have to understand that inflation itself is a problem, and I think it takes a while that to creep into the national consciousness. Yeah, and like we were saying about Gordon Brown earlier, if if you're the government, especially with elections, well, I mean, we, we haven't got a general election for a while, but if you know that elections are coming up, you don't want to make that decision and lose because you're going to be putting your people through financial pain. Correct. You don't want to do that and lose potential votes. Correct. Um, and so there is that kind of, well, we don't want to do anything too unpopular. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point with independent um, central banks was the idea they could sort of rise above the political fray, they could get on with doing their job and not worry about the electoral timetable. Uh, but in truth, most central banks have not really had to tackle high inflation. You know, inflation was on its way down uh, or had already reached rock bottom when they were made independent. You know, Bank of England was made independent in 1997, by which time inflation was already under control. So what we haven't seen for the Bank of England, for example, is a situation where it is forced to tackle high inflation as opposed to maintain low inflation um, and whether it really has that political legitimacy to make tough decisions that we've seen from uh, politicians in the past, but which are now apparently um, in the Bank of England's own remit. And that, I think, is going to be an interesting issue for the next uh, next few years. Yeah, yeah, we uh be interesting to see where where the current government go with it. Yeah, um, you know, I, 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 obviously the, the government's noises have been to say, well, look, we we want to get inflation down, but 
you can look at Rishi Sunak's sort of pledges from earlier in the year. It's to halve inflation. Well, inflation's at 10 currently, as we mm. speak. Uh, halving, it takes it to five, but the target from Bank of England is supposed to be at two. So it's not a huge ambition. <laughs> and it isn't no. really consistent with the sort of price stability that the bank itself is supposed to be delivering. No, uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what, what they come up with. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, this has been really interesting. Thank you very much for coming on. Would you just mind uh, reminding everyone uh, the title of your book and uh, where they can get it from? Yes, of course. So it's called We Need to Talk About Inflation. Uh, the subtitle is 14 Urgent Lessons from the Last 2,000 Years, and I believe it's available certainly at all good online booksellers, and it should be available in all good high street booksellers as well. And we'll... Um... We'll try and get it onto our History Hack bookshop on bookshop.org. That way, a podcast gets a tiny slice of the money, and you get a larger slice of the money than if it went through a popular rainforest-named uh, website. That sounds marvellous. <laughs> I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, again, thank you ever so much for coming on and uh, trying to uh, explain inflation to us all. Pleasure. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.